You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening is from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Father, we are thankful for your word to us, even difficult passages and books such as this. Uh, We pray that you would illumine your word to us tonight, that you would show us what we need to see and to hear. We pray for our time in this book over these next few weeks, these next couple of months together. We pray that you would lift our eyes to Jesus, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, you just heard Michael Reed may have you sad and depressed. It may have you really confused. Like, I thought the Bible was supposed to be an uplifting book and I've had a hard week and I came to church to be encouraged and then you just threw like 22 wet blankets on top of me. Well, this is why we need the whole counsel of God, all of his wisdom. Our God does not waste words. You guys know that? You guys agree with me on that? He does not waste words. He did not waste words with Ecclesiastes and he thought it necessary that we need each of the 66 books of the Bible. We learn something specifically unique from each book about God, about ourselves, about the nature of reality and eternity, and that is certainly true about Ecclesiastes. This book comes to us like a shot of adrenaline that wakes us up from like a make-believe world that we wish were true. It shows us reality. It smacks us in the face. It confronts us with who we are and the way the world really is. As Americans, we live in a world of social media narcissism and of comparison and of discontentment. We live in a world of constant need for distraction, of only fixing our eyes on the here and the now. And there's perhaps no book of the Bible that we need to be confronted by God more than than Ecclesiastes. Herman Melville, author of Moby Dick, said that Ecclesiastes is the truest of all books. Because there aren't any historical facts or characters in this book, it's as if Ecclesiastes could have been written by someone like last year. 
It's kind of timeless in that sense, but it wasn't. Humanity has benefited from Ecclesiastes for millennia, so I hope that you will come to love this book, that you will perhaps agree with Melville that this is the truest of all books, and that you'll love God and the world around you even more. But here's the thing. This is a difficult book. It can often seem like the writer doesn't know God, doesn't care about him at all, that there's no point in life, that there's no point in death, that there's no significance at all. At first glance, the writer of Ecclesiastes might as well be like some like French existentialist, like just smoking cigarettes on a, at a cafe uh, on the sidewalk, just like saying, yeah, everything is meaningless, man. Like he just put down his like Camus novel or some Jean-Paul Sartre or something, and then he wrote this. There's no point in life, there's no point at death, and we'll just all just get absorbed into the molecules of the universe again. But this is not the book. This book appears to be cynical, pessimistic, but it's actually a book that is chock full of joy and of optimism. One reason we don't understand this book is we don't understand its genre. This book is wisdom poetry. This is not Paul writing to the Romans, or it is not the gospel according to John that we just spent nine months in. This is not like a collection of stories or teachings of Jesus. One pastor writes, Many Christians have grown up, traveled the prophetic roads of the Old Testament and the Pauline highways of the New Testament. Wisdom highways, though, are less traveled. The Song of Solomon is like a back road brothel to us. Job is like a long stretch of desert road with no nightlight and no gas station and no rest stop for miles. People can get stuck out there with no help, so we rarely travel there without a great deal of preparation. Ecclesiastes, well, it sounds like a crazed man downtown. He smells like he hasn't bathed. He looks like it, too. And as we pass by, he won't stop glaring at us and beckoning to us that our lives are built on illusions and that we're all going to die. So most of us choose to get our lunch at a different shop on a less dreary corner of town. Well, that's true if we are not considering what we're reading and considering it carefully. So we're going to think a lot about wisdom over the next eight weeks or so. We're going to have to read this book as the poetry that it is. And one implication of that is that this book doesn't come to us like a linear argument. Sometimes this book comes to us like it's like a jumbled up, knotted up pile of Christmas lights that this guy just hands to you. And there's going to be themes repeated and emphasized over and over again. And sometimes we'll get confused. Wait, yeah, we already talked about that in chapter two or something. But that's okay. Now, one last bit of introduction before we get into the poetry of verse two. Ecclesiastes 1.1, if you look at that, tells us that the following 12 chapters are a sermon by someone called the preacher. The writer or compiler of this book, who's someone different than the preacher, identifies the preacher as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, for centuries, most assumed this was Solomon, because Solomon is the son of David, king in Jerusalem, right? But beginning with Martin Luther, many, if not most people today, think that this was actually someone different than Solomon. Despite claims that the preacher is wiser than anyone before him, that he had become greater and surpassed all who had come before him in Jerusalem, there are some oddities. First, he, he like slips in and out of the first person and the third person. He doesn't say that, just come out right out and say that he is Solomon, like he does in, at the beginning of the first verse of the Proverbs. And based on like syntax and word choice, it's very likely that this is one of the latest Old Testament books that we have. 
What we have here seems to be probably like a fictional autobiography of someone many centuries after Solomon putting on the Solomon character. Seemingly saying, if Solomon, the richest and wisest person in the history of the planet, couldn't be satisfied by wealth and by significance in this life, then no one can. Now, ultimately, it doesn't really matter if it's Solomon or not. It's not like the writer is trying to trick anyone. It doesn't in any way shake our confidence that this book is still the inspired word of God. It's like if, like today, I wrote a book of, like, humorous wisdom, and I identified myself as, like, Mark Twain or somebody. Like, everyone knows that Mark Twain lived and died many centuries ago. Uh, I wouldn't be trying to trick you. You would understand what I'm doing. I'm putting on a character. So the preacher, this preacher, likely many years, perhaps even while Israel is in exile in Babylon, comes into the pulpit, and he's going to give us a great sermon on the meaning of life. Now, incidentally, the Hebrew word for preacher here, you've got just preacher in English there, the words of the preacher, this is a Hebrew word that's it's called koheleth. Someone, uh, a koheleth just means assembly. So this is someone from the assembly who comes out of the assembly to speak to the assembly. And the word Ecclesiastes, perhaps just a little trivia here, maybe you never thought about what the word Ecclesiastes means. Uh, well, it's just a translation of the word Koheleth. It's the same root of the word Ecclesia, the word for church, the word for gathering or assembly. So all Ecclesiastes is, is just the preacher or his musings uh, to um, this assembly. So here, let, let's go. Let's think through this introduction poem. These verses 2 through 11 under just two headings here. First, we're just going to think through the whole poem together that life is vanity. And then we'll swing back around to make some reflections by asking just so what? Okay? Let's do this whole thing. Life is vanity. Just look through these first two verses, though, off the top. Verses 2 and 3 again. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, our first problem with understanding what he's saying here, perhaps you're like, I don't understand what he's saying. Well, our first problem is, is that we don't use vain or vanity like he does, right? Like when we say someone is vain or he or she is full of vanity, we're saying he or she is like full of like conceited arrogance or something. Uh, That's not what he's saying. And I don't think he's saying quite what perhaps another one of your English translations might say uh, of meaningless. Perhaps you have an English translation that says meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Like nothing that we can do matters at all. He's going to later tell us over and over again to like pursue wisdom, to pursue one thing over the other. And he'll conclude the entire book on reflecting on the vanity of life with this in chapter 12. He's going to say, the end of the matter is this. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. He is saying this is what humans ought to do. Humans have purpose. He's not saying all of life for humanity is meaningless. So what is he saying? Well, the Hebrew word here for vanity or meaninglessness is the word hevel. Everyone say that word with me. With a hard H. Hevel. Now, the, the, the breath that just came out of your mouth when you said hevel, do that again, hevel, that's actually a good onomatopoeia for what is going on here. The word he's getting after, meaninglessness, vanity, is like the breath that just came out of your mouth, the vapor that just came out of your mouth. Like in a, in a couple of months, 
When you leave your house to go to work or to go to school and you come out and it's that first real brisk, cool morning and you see your vapor come out of your mouth, that's what it means. Vapor, vapor. All is vapor. Like where did that vapor go? Right? Actually, maybe one of you scientists can explain to me what happened to the moisture and where it went. I'm not sure, but it was here for a second and then gone. Like you didn't get to your office and sit down at your desk and you're like, man, like I had a really great moment with that vapor. I really wish it was still around. Like it, just, it was there and gone and then forgotten completely. You don't look back longingly at that air vapor. You weren't sad. It was short-lived. Life moves on and you never think about it again. And such is life. And not certain parts of life, but all of life. Everything about our lives is vanity, is hevel, is here and gone. Every part of our lives is like, it's like a sandcastle building contest. Right? We're all working really hard to build something of significance and worth. It actually might look really creative, right? Might look really amazing and impressive. But then the very next morning, the tide comes in and destroys everything, and then when we all come back to the beach the next day, there is no evidence that anyone was even there, much less building an impressive sandcastle. It's gone and forgotten, and all of life is here, gone, and forgotten. Verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What profit is there to work really hard to build an impressive sandcastle, to get a lot of stuff? Even the rich people die. And they don't get to take their wealth with them. The rich and the poor alike are all vapor. Hevel. He introduces this phrase, under the sun, in verse 3. This is the first of 29 times that we're going to see this phrase throughout this book. But everything under the sun, we'll talk about it a little bit more in just a second. But everything under the sun is vanity. Hevel. Here, gone, and forgotten. Don't believe me? He says, let me show you. Verse 4. A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. I'm going to do a little experiment with you. I don't think I've ever done something as interactive with you like this before, but I would like you, if you know both of your parents' first names, to raise your hand. Uh, This could be your adoptive parents. Perhaps you never even met your parents, but at least you know both of their first names. Now keep your hand raised if you know All four of your grandparents' first names. Lost a couple. Now keep your hands raised if you know all eight of your great-grandparents' first names. All eight? Okay, we lost them all. We got a couple trying to work through them. Here's the... Wow, you can do it? That's... Okay, maybe, maybe. I think if we put you on the spot, you would fail. But uh, maybe there's one, but the rest of us... Here's the thing. Within 100 years, no one is going to remember your name. No one. Or like perhaps, uh, perhaps, other than maybe Shannon Lair, can anyone name five vice presidents? Like these are important men, right, uh, that have lived in the history of the United States. And I don't think maybe one or two of us could. I'm pretty confident Shannon could. But uh, that's crazy, right? 
Within 100 years, no one will remember your name. Like, think about your great-grandparents. Like, they were once, like, 16-year-old teenagers full of life and vibrancy, right? They, they, they had thoughts and emotions like we did. Your great-grandparents, right, who just seemed so old and just, like, such a long time ago, they struggled through things like, when am I going to get to leave my parents' house, right? Like, your great-great-grandparents were, like, probably pretty oppressive to them, right? And they wanted to get out. And they had emotions and thoughts. Like, like, do you think that girl likes me? Or like, did that boy just notice me? Like, they had those kinds of thoughts. They aren't just like crusty old, like black and white photos. They were human beings. And then they grew up and they left their parents' houses and they got jobs and they got married and they made a living and they bought a house and they worked hard and they listened to music and they enjoyed good food and life. They had grandkids. Maybe they even went to their grandkids like dance recitals and piano recitals. And then they got older and they got older and their bodies began to start work, stop working quite as well as they once had and then they died. They died. And then no one remembers their name. So it was for them and so it will be for you. Happy Sunday. You're dismissed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Seriously, though, like not only do we live and then we die and then no one will remember us, but this is the way it's been for thousands and thousands of years. Like generation upon generation upon generation upon generation is like just the same. Whether it was like ancient Greeks or the, like the greatest generation, post-World War II generation, each generation of parents can say, man, kids these days, they're just not like, they're just ruining things, man. They're not like it, it's not, things aren't like it was when we were kids, right? Even though teenagers these days don't seem to be the biggest problem, like my millennial generation is the one that's ruining society these days. Uh, now we millennials, we're having kids, right? And then those kids are going to become teenagers and then they're going to become parents. And then you teenagers that are sitting here, you're going to have kids one day. And I guarantee you, when you're like in your late 40s, you're going to be like, kids these days, they just don't respect adults like we did. Or whatever it is, right? And then you'll get old and then you'll die. <laughs> like massive cultures have come and gone. Like you've perhaps felt like, the, have you ever been to like Bandelier or Mesa Verde and felt like the quiet strangeness of what was like, an impressive culture, an impressive cliff-dwelling culture that has been gone for, I don't know, hundreds of years, thousands of years. It's really eerie. But the same thing happens. Perhaps if you walk through Rome or Greece, it's just a little bit not quite as weird because there's modern stores surrounding these ancient ruins. But like, do you think that after 400 years of being the biggest, baddest dude on the block, that any Roman would have ever thought, we won't always be the biggest, baddest dude on the block? Like, they probably would have thought, like, the Rome will live forever, right? Now, I'm not making any world predictions right now, but you kind of assume, I think we as Americans just kind of implicitly, uh, subconsciously assume that America is just going to live forever, and we're going to be like the greatest nation forever and ever. A thousand years from now, the Constitution still stands. Maybe, probably not. Like, do you know how many, we've been around for 250 years. Like, do you know how many world powers were at the height of world power for 250 years? Like, more than we could count. 
Because I watch too many sci-fi movies, I daydream like all the time about like what post-apocalyptic North America is going to look like. And like when people in the year like 3122 are walking around and they're in New York City and like they're walking around the ruins of the Empire State Building or like, what is this thing? It's like, I'm fairly confident they played some kind of a sport here and they used a stick to hit some kind of a ball, but I don't really know what it is. Uh, and the, some letters that say like Yankee or something on the outside of this building. We don't really know what a Yankee is. Like, it's going to be weird, right? But just like in Rome or Bandelier today, that's the United States of America, likely a thousand years from now. Here, gone and forgotten, a generation comes, a generation goes. A world empire comes, a world empire goes. Verse 5, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. I'll always remember a hunting trip with my buddy Eric that we went on a few years ago and we like we woke up at like 345 from our tent and we hiked like an hour in and uh, just kind of propped up against a tree and waited for the sun to rise. We had a good 30 or 45 minutes waiting for there to be light, right? And you, you see over the horizon, over this ridge, like there begins to be this the first little glimmer of, of light, of white uh, of just beginnings of light. You're not, you're not seeing the sun, but you're seeing its light. And then slowly and slowly, more light. And then you see the trees around you that you couldn't see before. You can see things as the sun rises. It was an amazing, beautiful sunrise. And then that night when we were driving home, the sun setting behind us. I'm looking in the side mirror over here, and I'm watching the same sun that we saw set 12 hours ago, or however long it was, now setting behind me. And I was just thinking, like, if we just turn around and go back and set at the same tree that we sat at this morning, it would look exactly the same. Exactly the same. And if we had a time machine and we could go like a thousand years in the future or a thousand years in the past, like, because we were so removed from human civilization, that scene would have probably looked exactly the same. The sun rising and setting. It's like the sun is like just on this never-ending track. And I know the earth is the one doing the spinning, right? Uh, but it just looks, it's, it's like it's on a track, just going around the earth, always the same, never ending. It rises, it moves across the sky, it, it sets and then it hustles back around the earth to do it all again. Or as I read from one pastor this week, when the sun goes down, we have every expectation of seeing it again. It does not necessarily expect to see us again. I, I read that quote, and I was like, that's really good. And then I thought, you know what? How many people die every day? Uh, and I found a blog post from 2016. So the numbers might be a little bit different in 2018, but about a little over 150,000 people in the world die every day. 150,000 every single day that the sun does not expect to see as it comes back up again for another day. And like the sun... The same winds of oxygen just blow around and around century after century. The same H2O molecules have been migrating and wandering all over the globe for millennia. I mean, like, it's really crazy that mountain springs 
flow into streams, bigger streams, and then rivers, and then they flow, those rivers flow into oceans, and then the ocean water evaporates, and then it rains on the land or on the mountains, and then all that water finds its way back up into a mountain spring, and then it just does it again. Like, have you ever thought about it? That I, I think this is scientifically possible. Again, one of you scientists can correct me after. But that if you drink water, like if you've drunk some water today, that some of those water molecules could have one day been drunk like 3,000 years ago by like a Hittite man or like an Incan girl or something. They're like the same molecules. I think, right? But yeah, these, Clint, I don't know if you guys know this, Clint is a hydrologist. Uh, so yes, he, he knows these things. Uh, anyway... These water molecules, they just, they, it's, like the, it's like the track of the sun. It's just always revolving and rotating around, right? And yet water, it doesn't do anything. I found this out this week. I was Googling lots of facts about the globe this week. Uh, the Mississippi River dumps about 4.4 million gallons per second into the Gulf of Mexico, <laughs> And so you would think, with that amount of water flowing into the Gulf of Mexico, that you could, like, remove yourself a little bit from the Mississippi Delta, like, find a beach, and just watch the ocean level rise, right? Millions of gallons per second. Surely the, the Gulf and the Atlantic and the whole, the, all of the oceans are going to start rising with this amount of water going into it. But it doesn't. Nothing happens. It's just hevel. Vanity of vanities. The water comes, it goes, it evaporates, it rains, it always does the same thing. It never fills or accomplishes anything. There's no gain. There's no surplus to be made or to be had. It's almost as if the preacher is trying to get us to consider that if there is never any surplus, if there is never anything new under the sun in nature, then why in the world do we work ourselves to death to provide some kind of a surplus or gain in our material lives? Like even if you get rich and make a financial profit, you're just going to die and not get to use it. It's just the, like our wealth is just this water molecule that just is, is just rotating and wandering around in the world. Sandcastle. And this is the kind of reality that forces the preacher to then reflect in verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. We don't remember the past, and the future won't remember us. And yet there's also nothing new. While, while certain cultures value certain things more highly than others, we humans, we've always wanted the same things. We've always loved the same things. We always fight over the same things. There is nothing new under the sun. History repeats itself. And humans just flow through the river of time. Here, gone, and forgotten. I was at Love Field in Dallas in June, waiting in the security line. I was just standing there, and I was considering, how many people have stood in this line today? It was late in the afternoon. Like, humans came in from all 
different places, all different stages and walks of life. They got through security and then they went to hundreds of different destinations. Like the overhead time-lapse video of the line would be like kind of interesting, but probably pretty boring. But since I had already started thinking about this book, I was standing there in this security line. I was like, Ecclesiastes, man. Like vanity of vanities. Like this is just hevel. Like we're all just moving through the line of this life. Like how many boarding passes and IDs did that TSA agent look at that day? Like he looked in your eyes. He looked at your ID. He saw your name. He might even have said your name. And then like 10 seconds later, he forgot what you looked like and forgot your name. Vapor. Everything is vapor. There is nothing new under the sun. There is nothing on this earth that a human being can find, can make, can contribute that will have lasting meaning or significance. Here, gone, and forgotten. All of it. It's all hevel. So what do we do? How do we now live? Should we just all move to Paris and smoke cigarettes until we die? Life is vapor, but so what? Well, no. No, we should not move to Paris and start smoking cigarettes. You can move to Paris. Yeah, uh, if you want. Uh, but not because life is meaningless, right? We're going to keep seeing this under the sun thing uh, con- uh, continue to develop throughout this book. And we're going to continue to see it develop into more of our understanding of like life without God. There is no profit in this life under the sun and under uh, this curse of creation. We sang earlier, when heaven and earth be one. Because of our world's rebellion against the God who has created it and has loved it, the world now stands in opposition against God. We saw this theme over and over and over again in John's gospel. And it's almost as if like the sun is like the dividing line between these two kingdoms. And life in this world, in this kingdom, has no profit or gain apart from what's above it. Now, we could just stop there, and that'd be just fine. Even as Christians, the kind of reflection that we've just done is good and often helpful. It keeps us from thinking that we're the center of the universe. Understanding that we're going to die someday and we're actually not that important keeps us from thinking too highly of ourselves. It keeps us from putting too much faith in material things, and it even helps us to prepare for our own imminent deaths. Even New Testament writers like James will pick up on this. Like James writes in chapter 4 of his book, What is your life? For you are a mist who appears for a little time and then vanishes. He's picking up on this vapor language and he's doing it to get after human arrogance and pride. Who are you to think too highly of yourself and claim to know about the future? You're just a vapor that's going to be here and gone and forgotten. But nihilism is not the worldview of James or of the preacher. That nothing matters. That we... Live, we die, we're forgotten, so there's no meaning in life and no hope in anything at all. While the preacher would agree with the nihilist that we live, we die, and then we're forgotten, he would disagree strongly that there is therefore no meaning in life because life under the sun isn't the only kind of life there is. There is one who is over the sun. There is one who is lasting and eternal, not heavily. 
This Hevel world is designed to contain human beings who understand and accept their frailty, their limitation, and then, in humility, anchor their very lives to the heavens, anchor their very lives to the kingdom that does not end. Because as we know, after spending nine months in the Gospel of John, amidst a fleeting world of constantly built and washed away sandcastles, the God-man did arrive into the world. And not only to save and to secure us, but he arrives as a great wisdom teacher, as a new preacher, the greater Solomon. Perhaps Jesus had been reflecting on Ecclesiastes 1 in his quiet time that morning uh, when he was out teaching in Mark 8. He's out with the people and he says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What kind of foolishness would it be for a human to go out with like a trash bag in Albuquerque in April when it's really windy? You like try to capture some wind to save for later. Foolishness. How foolish would that be? Well, the lasting the firm and the secure thing is being offered to you for you to spend your entire life trying to capture, trying to find and acquire that which is hevel. Or on another day, when in Luke 12, Jesus is out and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Implication being, not yours, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What is Jesus' conclusion? Not necessarily that life is meaningless and work and the pursuit of money and even the gathering of grain and extra surplus stuff is a waste of time. But his conclusion is that the fool is someone who is not rich toward God. Someone who builds a sandcastle and thinks it's his home. There is no profit under the sun that can be added to a man's eternal balance sheet. But while there's nothing new under the sun, Jesus arrives and he begins making things new. He comes teaching a new commandment that we would love one another. And most importantly, he comes to enact a new covenant. He gives his people a new meal that they might remember the new and lasting way of the forgiveness of their sins through his broken body and his blood on the cross. And through his life and his death and his resurrection, he gives his people new hearts. And he makes them into new creations that the old might pass away and the new might come. There's nothing new under the sun but the one who comes from the kingdom above the sun, the very son of righteousness, he comes and he starts making things new. There is no profit under the sun that can be added to a man's eternal balance, but then he, Jesus, comes from beyond the sun and he like blows the vault doors off of the bank account of your merit with his grace. He makes us into a people who stands now firmly and securely on him. 
My hope, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is hevel. All other ground is sinking sand. Anything that we might try to give our lives a sense of significance, value, and meaning will be here, gone, and forgotten. But he is the solid rock. And though, as we read in Ecclesiastes 1, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet 2,000 years later, at the end of this service, we're going to come and we're going to take a meal in remembrance of what he has done. We remember what he's done in the past and we look forward to the, 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 to the times to come of what he will do. And because of all of this, in 1 Corinthians 15, read this chapter, it's a really long one. Paul's been thinking and writing about the resurrection for a long time, both Jesus' resurrection and our future resurrection. And then after all that, after thinking about what Jesus has done in the gospel and the nature of reality and life and eternity itself, he says in verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It is not hevel. If you are trusting in Jesus' life lived for you, his death died for you, then your present reality is not meaningless, is not ultimately here, gone, and forgotten. Your labor is not vain. It's not just a vapor. Your life, even your work today, Paul says, will extend into eternity and therefore is not just a vapor, but has extraordinary meaning for eternity but because of what Christ has come to do. Now we've got a couple more months to think through these things. This first poem that we got to today was really just setting the table and asking lots of questions and getting us to be confronted by and doubt our preconceived notions of reality. But we're going to get to a lot of answers as well. Namely, what many people think is the most important question for, for us to, for any human, to ask and answer. What is the meaning of life? Why are we here? If all of it is but a vapor, then why are we here? Which is what the rest of the book wants to teach us. And which is why one commentator says that we'll begin to understand as we read and learn from this book is that Ecclesiastes teaches us to learn what will happen to us if we choose what the world tries to offer instead of what God has to give. So let's pray and ask God to reveal himself through this book. Our Father, we are thankful that we are but vapor. We are thankful that you have made us as frail, as weak, even as people who can get sick and die. It's an odd thing, I think, for us to be... Uh, at face value, thankful for. But I think it's right for us to be thankful for that. That we were not meant to be uh, some, the, the main characters of this world or even of our lives. We were meant to be reminded of our frailty and our weakness. And we were meant to fasten ourselves, to anchor ourselves to the rock, which is Christ. 
Father, we pray that you would continue to shoot us with adrenaline, to smack us in the face with reality through this book over these next many weeks together. That we lift our eyes from the things of this world and fix our eyes on Christ, our King, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray for these things in his name, for our joy both in this life and for eternity. And we pray for these things in his name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.